challenging subject. As a young man, I got to know the law of the sea as something that could only have been at that time created at a special moment. And imagine today <laughs> the challenges of creating even such a basic law in this multilateral climate. Uh, the oceans, many of us, I don't speak for you, but <laughs> I speak for many who have not focused on the oceans when we have been forced to understand their value and their challenge, I think we've all been struck how closely linked they are to survival, safety and, and security. And of course, the message in all of this is really uh, worrisome and problematic uh, to answer. What do we really know about the deep depths and the changing currents of the seas? Can we mobilize? the really many different actors in such a crowded space and packed agenda with competing interests. Will we feed the world and will we live well also in a hundred years? The space for discussion is broad. You bring not only your current role as a foreign minister, but you come also as a previous defense minister. So who is better placed than you to span the territory between security, dialogue, diplomacy and development. You also have a background in the Norwegian parliament dealing with European issues and as such, of course, you are also someone who can bring the domestic together with the international and that's what is needed. So, uh, Minister Eriksen Sørede, would you address us please? Very much welcome. Excellencies, ladies and gentlemen, first I want to thank Mats Karlsson for inviting me to have the opportunity to speak on a topic that of course is of, of huge importance to Norway, but also to the Nordic countries and to the globe as a whole. And I would also like to, to thank Sweden, you take the opportunity to thank Sweden and also my good colleague Margot. Uh, for chairing the regional cooperation on the Nordic Council of Ministers. Um, we have also had very good discussions right now. I came from Nesby Slott, uh, many of you know where that is, and we had good Nordic uh, discussions. And for Norway, uh, chairing the Nordic Council of Ministers in uh, 2017, uh, a main initiative was actually to ensure clean and healthy oceans and develop blue and sustainable economy. And that, of course, is easier said than done in one year. And that is why I'm going to have some perspectives on the more longer term uh, issues. And I'm also pleased to see that the current Swedish chair is then passing on many of the topics that we had and the work that we did. I think it's fair to say that the sea runs like a blue thread through Scandinavian history. The Barents Sea, the Baltic Sea, Katagat, the North Sea, the Bay of Botnia. It has all been sources of both food and energy, of strategic protection, and also our gateway to the world. They are, and they've always been, among our most important strategic interests. 
And to use Norway as an example, we command sea territories that are almost seven times as large as our land ter territories. So of course the sea and the oceans is of strategic importance to us. And having lived from and for the oceans for centuries, we know that our future prosperity, our future stability, it very much depends on our ability to manage the oceans in a sustainable way. By 2050, we will be close to 10 billion people on Earth. 10 billion people who will need more food, who will need more energy, and more means for transportation and travel. To meet our basic needs in the future, we have to do sustainable ocean management today. And I think that the world has everything to gain from keeping our oceans productive and healthy. The oceans are, as all of you know, unique ecosystems. And to protect them, we need more international cooperation. And I will get back to that. As Mats mentioned, the United Nations Conventions on the Law of the Sea is actually what provides the international framework. And I think all of us has a lot to thank the convention for. Respect for the multilateral system and international rules and conventions is of course essential. And for Nordic countries, this is maybe more of, well, is more in the forefront and more natural for us to think that way than uh, we see other places in the world. Clear rules and stable framework conditions, they are necessary to ensure a level playing field for equal opportunities. And experience has shown that respect for the law of the sea benefits all, both relatively small countries like the Nordic and Baltic countries, but also the global superpowers. And to maximize the effect, we have to ensure the full implementation of the convention and other global commitments. So the maritime domain is once again increasingly in focus, both military strategically, but also economically. And that goes whether we are talking about the North Atlantic, the South China Sea, the Indian Ocean. And the maritime domain's rise in military prominence is also the reason for Norway's initiatives and engagement in NATO the past four years to revitalize NATO's maritime strategies and postures and also to renew the command structure. And economically, oceans are the highways of global markets. Over 90% of the world's trade is carried by the sea. Billions of terabytes of data follow the same route through the intercontinental cables that are so critical to the internet. It should therefore be no surprise to anyone that maritime security has once again become an area of concern, but also an avenue for cooperation. Oceans are also essential for security and defense in the classical sense, as areas of power projection for rising powers, lifelines between allies, and areas of major strategic importance as centers of great technological advances. For Europe, maintaining the link across the Atlantic is a matter of vital importance. But this development is not confined to our waters. Across the globe, 
countries are fielding new and advanced capabilities at sea. Submarines, underwater autonomous vehicles, missile systems and more. And this has really been a prominent feature in my time or my four years as a defense minister that we've seen more and more also globally. And the increasing level of activity, of sophistication, can affect deterrence and defense. And conflict may escalate in a way we didn't predict, and we can also risk having misunderstandings. Um, and that is something that we also want to prevent. And therefore, the need for strong cooperation is maybe greater than ever. I'm also very glad to see the growing maritime cooperation between countries in and around the Baltic Sea region in recent years. But as Arctic nations, we in the Nordic sphere, we have a front row seat of to seeing increasingly and rapid changes due to climate change. Today, global teamwork is maybe more important than ever. And if you combine the negative effects of pollution and waste and add onto that the melting ice cap, we can see that our oceans are in trouble. So, of course, from our perspective, a swift implementation of the Paris Agreement is, of course, of crucial importance both to the oceans and to us. The SDGs, and maybe in particular SDG 14 on the conservation and sustainable use of the oceans, are the common guidelines that we work after. And meeting the SDG targets will only be possible, only be possible if we manage the oceans in a sustainable way. The UN Oceans Conference last year was, in my opinion, a significant milestone. And I would like to thank uh, the Swedish government for all the efforts in co-hosting together with Fiji. It was the first time the United Nations spearheaded a global conference that was e exclusively focusing on the health of the oceans. It was the first time. And I think that will help pave the way for a stronger focus on sustainable oceans in the UN also in the years to come. Last year, Norway presented a strategy for ensuring sustainable growth in our ocean industries and a white paper on the place of the oceans in Norway's foreign development policy. Now we are translating our policies into practice. And the white paper is actually also in Norway, the first of its kind, and it's it focuses uh, attention to three areas. One, promoting sustainable use of ocean resources. Two, ensuring that oceans and are clean and healthy. And three, strengthening the role of blue economy in our development cooperation. Let's start with the sustainable use of the oceans. Today, more than two-thirds of Norway's export revenues come from coastal and ocean-based activities like fisheries, aquaculture, shipping, and energy production. Two-thirds of our export revenues. And we rely on the integrated management plans for marine areas. And I think it's fair to say that our ocean management brings together <coughs> all the relevant parts of public administration, research and development, and not least, the ocean and coast-based industries. 
And in our view, many of the experiences that we have done and also other Nordic countries have done are quite relevant on the global arena for sustainable blue economy. Responsible ocean management and responsible harvesting and food production, as well as employment, growth and welfare for generations to come are possible to merge. And I will shortly get back to that. Technological and scientific advantages or uh, advancements are gradually helping us uncover all the secrets that we can possibly imagine about the sea and the seabeds. I think many of you who are part of research communities can agree that I think we only have just started knowing what the oceans entail for us. We have not yet seen the full potential of the oceans. And now, we know that it is not necessarily a conflict between growth and sustainable development. It is possible to strike the right balance between production and protection. Experiences shows that we can harvest the sea without reducing their value. And for decades, not to say centuries, we've made a living from sustainably harvesting our natural resources. Of course, it entails strictly enforcing and observing environmental standards. And that has made it possible for ocean-based industries and a healthy marine environment to coexist. Our management of living marine resources and a shared fish stocks is based on scientific knowledge and managed in accordance with bilateral and regional agreements. And as you know, the cooperation in the Arctic Council, the Barnes Corporation, the Baltic Sea Corporation, EU's Northern Dimension, they are all examples of successful cooperation that strikes the balance between sustainable use and production uh, of um, protection of ocean resources. My point is that cooperation matters. It has a real impact. And let me use the Barnes Codstock as one good example. Norwegian and Russian researchers, they do joint research on fish management and their knowledge and their advice is passed on to decision makers in respective countries. Norway and Russia successfully manages the world, world's largest cod stock. In 1989, if we date back some years, the Arctic cod stock was at an historically low level. Today, the cod stock is 10 times larger. The annual economic revenue from our joint fisheries between Norway and Russia amounts to an estimated sum of $2 billion a year. That would not have been possible if we had not done sustainable management. We also see that uh, Nor Norway's offshore production can live side by side with some of the healthiest fish, wild fisheries in the world. And globally, the Norwegian aquaculture industry provides 36 million meals every day. And many of you eat Norwegian salmon once or twice or three times a week. So it's good to know that it ends up on good tables. 
we also see that an increasing number of companies recognize the, the great opportunities offered by well-managed oceans. They're working hard to improve the environmental performance of existing ocean industries and to develop new industries with less environmental footprint. In order to encourage and inspire the ocean industries to participate actively in efforts to reach the SDGs, Norway recently became the main sponsoring country of the UN Global Compact's Action Platform for Sustainable Ocean Business. That title is so long that it's almost impossible to say. But you know what I mean, UN Global Compact. Let's move on to, to clean and healthy oceans. It is our responsibility, our shared responsibility, to pass on healthy oceans to future generations. And limi limiting the impact of global warming and stopping the flows of waste into the sea is really an acute issue that needs to be dealt with now. Plastic waste is a particular concern because of the sheer volume and the fact that it doesn't disappear. Growth in the global use of plastic-intensive consumer goods is projected to increase significantly over the next 10 years, especially in markets where waste management and systems for waste management is just in the beginning. In December last year, the third session of the UN Environmental Assembly adopted a resolution tabled by Norway with the aim to stop the flow of plastic waste and microplastics into the ocean. A staggering 12 million tons of plastic end up in the ocean every year. And as I said, it doesn't disappear. And it cannot continue. And this year, we will launch a program to combat waste and plastic in the oceans in developing countries with a budget of around 150 Norwegian kroner, which amounts to around $20 million. A zero vision for plastics in the ocean is, of course, very ambitious, but with joint forces and global teamwork, we can actually make substantial change. Now the third point, the blue economy in, developing, uh, in development assistance. If based on responsible resource management, there is no reason why the blue economy cannot be become a driver of growth in developing countries. Norway is strengthening efforts to share knowledge, technology, and sustainable management strategies with de developing countries. So last year, we launched a new state-of-the-art research vessel called Dr. Fritjof Nansen. Some of you may know who he was. Uh, and Dr. Fritjof Nansen, he will, or she as a ship usually is called, will conduct scientific work with and for developing countries in many years to come. And according to the World Bank, the fisheries sector is losing a staggering $83 billion a year, largely because of overfishing. Much of these wasted opportunities hits small island states and developing nations the hardest. Illegal fishing can ravage healthy fish stocks and it can undermine the economy. Sustainable fish and seafood 
are healthy foods in a rapidly growing global population. And we want to give fish and seafood the position it deserves in food security. So my Prime Minister, Anna Solberg, she has taken the initiative to establish a high-level panel on building a sustainable ocean economy. And she will lead the panel herself. She has reached out to heads of governments across the globe from several coastal states. And the panel will cooperate closely with the UN, with other international initiatives, such as Friends of the Ocean Action, where Sweden, of course, has a prominent role. And representatives both from the ocean industry, from civil society, will give advice and input, and a group of experts will provide scientific reports. The overall objective of this panel is to increase the global awareness of how responsible ocean management can help us implement the 2030 Agenda and the Sustainable Development Goals. We will present the final report in 2020, and a milestone, of course, will be the Our Oceans Conference taking place in Oslo next year. <coughs> and striking the balance between sustainable use and a healthy ocean environment as a precondition for increased economic growth will be key agenda points in this. Our oceans, they flow into each other. So in other words, we can actually talk about one ocean not several oceans. Sustainable ocean management is maybe the perfect example of why international cooperation matters and why global teamwork is necessary. If one country fails to stop waste and plastic going into the sea, we will all suffer. Irresponsible management of fish stocks in one country can have devastating effects on the global food chain. Norway and Sweden shared the objective of making healthy and productive oceans a priority, both bilaterally, regionally, and also globally. In a time of global uncertainty, where, many, where we many times see less cooperation at times where we need more cooperation, we have to continue to build the momentum for international cooperation on responsible ocean management. Thank you. Thank you very much, Ine. Uh, thank you also for not being pessimistic. <laughs> thank you for being pragmatic and speaking about this quintessentially global public good that is uh, the oceans. You laid out a really ambitious uh, agenda and we can only wish that uh, Prime Minister Solberg's initiative will uh, focus people's minds. Well, to reflect on your perspectives we have four very um, professional commentators to get us off to a discussion. I'll introduce them one by one but first off is uh, Gunilla Reichel who is head of the global program here at the Institute and an expert in climate and energy policies. Well, uh, Gunilla, you heard all of it. What broader governance challenges do you see ahead of us? Well, I would like to start with thanks for a very interesting speech and uh, a very important speech, I think. 
Uh, I think one thread that struck me is that that runs through your speech is the uh, um, the, the cooperation part and uh, the need of cooperation, um, which is uh, indeed key to work with all these kind of issues, whether we talk about climate change or oceans. And um, uh, I think we also need cooperation, all kinds of cooperation at all levels of society. Uh, the question that is uh, very central to pose here is that what kind of cooperation works best for the kind of problems we are facing today? And uh, when it comes to a broader governance context for oceans and for the lessons from climate governance, there are some things that I think is central and worth noting. And first, I would like to uh, discuss how we understand and define the problem in question and how do we best design governance institutions for these kind of problems. When, if we look at climate change, uh, it was Previously, it was uh, commonly understood as a global problem and that should be governed by an international treaty among nation states. But this top-down approach has given way for a much more decentralized um, approach for, for governance and um, the Paris Agreement has opened up a brand new chapter uh, in political efforts to, to tackle climate change, I would say. And uh, it provides a flexible framework for moving the world towards decarbonization and also leaving uh, goal setting and implement implementations up to, to states. And, uh, but at the same time, it also recognizes the, the importance of non-state and sub-national climate uh, initiatives and actors, which is central for, this, for the Paris Agreement. Uh, so under the agreement, the nations made pledges known as nationally determined contributions, NDCs, which I think many of you are familiar with. They indicate how national govern governments are evaluating climate risks and policy opportunities. And so the idea behind the Paris Agreement it was to let countries make pledges and then use that information for checkups into how it, uh, how it works. And I would say that even if this is a brand new idea and it hasn't really come into play, uh, what we see now with the pledges is that we need a lot more work and ambition uh, to keep us on the right path when it comes to, to, uh, to keeping us under two degrees of global warming. So this is sort of the broader outline, what we know about climate governance today. And uh, if we look second, how oceans uh, and are included in climate governance, there are, of course, several governance processes. You mentioned several of them, uh, and uh, it, it includes these global frameworks of the Paris Agreements and the SDGs. And I think, it, I mean, ocean plays a critical role in climate mitigation and adaptation. But before Paris, oceans received minimal attention in climate negotiations. So this is a is a is a change, I would say. Uh, and with this, uh, this rec uh, recognition, some states include ocean-related issues in their NDCs. So uh, we can see that, that there are some states that are doing this. But I found this uh, recently published article in Nature of Climate Change that shows that it is the advanced indu industrialized countries that pay least attention to the impacts on oceans in their NDCs, which is quite interesting, I think. And I think this is raises some questions of 
when governments articulate how they see the climate problem, do they pay attention or not to ocean issues in this context? And then is it important for states such as Norway and Sweden to include uh, ocean issues in their NDCs? Or is this much more seen as an issue for developing countries? Um, finally, I would like to, to run up here with some critical observations that could be made from made of climate governance that could be useful lessons for, for oceans, ocean governance. Uh, so first of all, climate change is not a problem to be solved by one single international organization. The focus has to be kept on the broad issues of transformations and decarbonizations. And I think this is where p the Paris Agreement got it right. The change of the problem definition uh, to a broader approach to cooperation and not only focusing on the UN, uh, United Nations. It shows the importance of understanding the structure of the problem. And uh, I think it's fair to say that we live on a human-dominated planet today and we must learn to adopt to the sustainability agenda more, more generally. And we ne also need an enhanced capacity to govern complexity as these issues reflect. And um, I think in the near future, we will be able to draw more clear lessons from the new approach to climate governance and whether it has been able to create, create institutions that are stable but not rigid and how to strike the balance between flexibility and stability, which is a much needed perspective, I would say. Thank you. Thank you. You speak so well about the Paris Agreement. Do we need a Paris Agreement for oceans? <laughs> um, well, that's a quite the short and long answer. <laughs> <laughs> you can come back to it if you like. Uh, I mean, the, the Paris Agreement has been in the process for many, many years, yeah. uh, over two decades, and uh, it has helped mainstream climate change into the policy discourse, I would say, in a, in a good way. Uh, and. Um, I think it also points. At, it also helps to mobilize political leaders and to create political will. It also helps us to uh, to put in critical actors such as cities, uh, business, I and really have a, an impact on climate change. Uh, at the same time, I mean, it's a complicated political process to reach this stage, and uh, I think. The Paris Agreement in itself is not the solution. Uh, I mean, we, we will not manage to keep under two degrees with just this agreement. So it's a, it's a bit difficult. I think also uh, when it comes to oceans, I'm sure many of you will discuss that, but it's, uh, it's partly a question beyond national jurisdictions and the global commons problems, which is similar to the climate change. Uh, but also it's a very complex issue and involve fisheries and security issues. So, yeah, I can't really say yes or no to that. Thank you. Subject to discuss. Pass the mic to your left, please. Um, Helen Ogren, Swedish ambassador for oceans since about a year, but very experienced in the nature of, of uh, environmental uh, multilateralism, I believe. So you heard the minister from Norway laying out a very ambitious agenda. Are we keeping up in Sweden? <laughs> Thank you very much, Mats, for uh, and the Institute for inviting me here for uh, for this uh, um, discussion. And thank you so much, Minister, for your uh, speech, uh, which I found very interesting. Um, well, as you mentioned, last year, Sweden and Fiji uh, co-chaired the first universal 
Ocean Conference, covering the wide range of issues that previously had been dealt with in different forums, like uh, fisheries, uh, protection of ecosystems, pollutions, etc. Now we had a discussion with a more holistic view. And it was also the first UN conference singling out one of the uh, globally agreed um, uh, goals for sustainable development, SDG 14. The reason for stepping up Sweden's engagement for ocean in the global arena were manifold. First, uh, the magnitude and the urgency of the problem. Uh, the ocean is covering 70, uh, around 70% of the surface of our planet, and the, health, uh, is in, uh, the ocean health is in serious and rapid decline. 90% of the fish stock are either overfished or used to the limits of their reprodu reproductive capacity. By 2050, there will be more plastic than fish in the ocean if the negative trends are not reversed. 90% of the coral reefs will be threatened by 2030 if no protective measures are taken and ocean warming and acidification are halted. So urgent actions are needed. Second, the role of the ocean for sustainable development. SDG 14 is intrinsically linked to other SDGs, like you said, Ina. Uh, poverty reduction, reducing hunger, sustainable production and consumption, climate change and energy production, um, and water. More than 3 billion people rely on fish for animal protein. And uh, some 300 million people find their livelihoods in marine fisheries. Consumption of fish are increasingly increasing in all countries. And about a third of the global fish stocks are overfished or 60% fully fished. And thirdly, the need for multilateral and stakeholder cooperation. The ocean knows no boundaries. Multilateral cooperation is necessary. As an example, this week, international negotiations started in New York to develop an international agreement to protect areas beyond national jurisdiction, the high seas. To solve the problems, we also need uh, change of business practices, develop technology and innovation to increase public awareness and change consumption patterns. We must involve the private sector, civil society, schools, museums, uh, researchers, think tanks uh, and households. And fourth, the fragmentation of the ocean agenda. We need policy coherence that addresses the challenges facing the ocean. Breaking the silos, coordinating policies, working across sectors and thinking holistically of the ocean is part of the solution. So, the results of the uh, first UN <coughs> Ocean Conference really exceeded our expectations. The outcome of the UN conference was a call for action, formulating areas where we need to step up efforts and increase political attention. In addition, over 1,400 voluntary commitments were made by a range of stakeholders, contributing with concrete activities to achieve SDG 14. And above all, it contributed to placing the ocean high on the political agenda. 
in 2020, four out of the 10 targets under SDG 14 will mature. It's about illegal fishing, stopping illegal fishing, stopping harmful uh, fishing subsidies, conserving 10% of coastal and marine areas, and also to manage, protect, and restore marine and coastal ecosystems. So further efforts are needed. And since the UN conference last June, Sweden have launched the initiative that you mentioned, uh, Minister, the Friends of Ocean Action, which de our Deputy Prime Minister Isabella Levine is co-chairing together with the uh, UN Special Envoy for Ocean, Mr. Peter Thompson. The intention is to mobilize innovation, engagement and resources from the private sector, civil society, international organizations and philanthropists to uh, step up actions to deliver on SDG 14. Sweden and Fiji are also co-chairing the initiative Ocean Pathway. As you mentioned, the links with ocean and the climate um, are uh, so important. And uh, climate change is warming our oceans and the CO2 emissions are causing acidification. And the pace of change in the physical and, and chemical parameters of the oceans is rapidly increasing, seriously affecting the living conditions for marine species and ecosystems. So without a healthy uh, ocean, the challenge to combat climate change will be even greater than it is uh, um, that we perceive it today. But with the, these um, efforts, we see Norway as a very strategic uh, and close partner to achieve progress. We wish you all the success with Prime Minister Solberg's high-level panel and um, the also important our ocean uh, conference we will host next year. And uh, I look forward to continued cooperation both bilaterally and at regional and global level with Norway as a very uh, close friend to Sweden. Thank you. Thank you. Well, I think that sounds like keeping up. And I think you need to keep <laughs> together. Let me turn now to Mats Svensson uh, with the microphone that is being passed. Uh, Mats, uh, you are head of research at the uh, Swedish Agency for Marine and Water Management. You heard the minister speak about the 12 million tons of plastic that ends up in the oceans. And, and you, Helen, said that soon the plastic will be more in by weight, I guess, than than FISH 2050, so that's quite a task. Tell us a bit about your technical perspective on, <laughs> on the realities. Well, I would say maybe not technical, but it's also kind of a behavioral problem. But uh, let, let me first uh, thank you for inviting me here also, and thank you for uh, a very good talk also, uh, which I think was thorough and covered a lot of, of very important topics related to the ocean and uh, also the, the blue economy issues as well then also. Um, I would say that we, we are an agency that w are working with various fields. Uh, first of all, we are working with planning, and uh, I would say marine spatial planning is a new field uh, where we are starting from a more or less of a tabula rasa, where we can actually do the kind of process in a very good way together. And we haven't not been able to do that on, on, on land, but now we have actually the opportunity to do it more thoroughly for the marine areas. I think that's very important also. Uh, more also is then also the marine protection, where the, the Swedish govern government have been very um, optimistic in, um, and very uh, thorough in, in, in going f um, 
and protecting 10% um, of, of the uh, marine spatial area. Uh, I think that's a very good uh, way of doing it also. However, there are always um, interests that you have to, to, to resolve uh, when, when you are protecting an area as well. And then uh, the next issue that we're dealing with is, of course, the management. I mean, that's why we have this agency where I'm working for them also. And, and the, the big issue there, I would say, is in ecosystem-based management, which is the kind of, of buzzword that we are now trying to make operational in terms of the, the marine environment as well then. We're also looking at more of a source-to-sea concept related to management because we know that a lot of the problems that we have in the oceans, they are not coming from the ocean itself. It's coming from our land activities. So therefore also we need then also to orchestrate what we're doing in terms of measures with the land activities. So in terms of plastic uh, particles or microparticles, I, I would like to say because it's more than just plastic, they are coming mainly from what we are doing on land and also. So therefore, we have to, to look at those activities also. So therefore, we as an agency, we have to collaborate with other agencies and other authorities, but also beyond the borders. Um, we also know that one of the best management tools we have is, of course, legal tools. And for the oceans, we really have to push for more of our development of the UN close uh, legal system as well then also uh, because there are areas that are not covered there in terms of uh, activities uh, particularly then also exploitation of resources but I'm, I'm sure that you and you will come back to that later then also and then uh, cooperation is the only way of going in terms of solving and also handling the, the problems that we have in the ocean and there um, we have had um, Collaboration is a very close uh, means with Norway for many years. We were just actually also in union uh, not that long time ago. Um, <coughs> but we also have um, a very good cooperation within EU, uh, where the Norway is a full member of the research programs. Uh, we have several research uh, programs uh, that are going to be launched also, where Norway is uh, participating, and we are very grateful for that. One way we had for the Baltic Sea areas is the bonus program that has been running for 15 years. It has been very successful. Now we are planning for the bonus two program, uh, which will be launched in 2021, where also Norway will be included. And also we're expanding the area from the Baltic Sea to the North Sea. And I'm looking forward to that collaboration uh, uh, very much as well then also. We are of course then also collaborating within OSPA and we have the, the equivalent in the Baltic Sea, the Helcom, where we also are working quite a lot. And um, to go back then to the issue that you were raising then, that's also what we're going to do um, with the plastic particles. In our terms, um, we know for, for example that one of the sources where we, where we have authorities, where we also can look at what is, has, is made in other countries is of course then also fishing nets, which is a big source of actually plastic that are actually emanating from activities in the sea. And where we can actually look at both technologies but also practices and how we are going to identify the nets and all the overnews of the nets but also the material because we have been then uh, having them in very doable, too durable materials so they are not going to break down at all. But if we can actually manufacture them in the other way so they actually will break down, 
then it will be better than also for the environment. Because I think it's inevitable that there will be particles from our ways of living that will never be zero uh, particles emanating, but of course then have a zero vision nevertheless. Because that will actually ha be a good target. We have that, for example, in Sweden in terms of uh, victims in the traffic system. Why shouldn't we have that kind of, of zero vision also for plastic in the sea? However, that will be having a long time to reach, but it should still be the kind of visionary that we should have, because that, that will be actually forcing us to, to actually think over what we are doing with all our consumption and production patterns that we have then also. Um, also to address what you're saying about blue highways, I think that's also a very important issue to look at also in terms of climate change. Because we know, for example, we have a clean shipping index, for example. Uh, we can then also launch that in a larger scale. Uh, we, we can also relate that, the clean shipping index, to various areas where we are regulating what kind of, of exhaust and oils and, and uh, fuels are we allowed to have in these areas. That should, of course, be expanded on, on a global level as well then. And then um, we also have uh, the issue related to fisheries, where we are having a good collaboration within ISIS, the International Center for the Exploration of the Sea, where is that is also the agency that is doing the, the um, advice to EU in terms of the EU fisheries policies and so on. But I think we should also connect that to how we're actually using the oceans in a larger context as well then also. So I think that collaboration should continue on. I also I think it's very good that we can collaborate with Russia, because we have Russia as a neighbor, both in the Arctic Sea as well as in the Baltic Sea. So it's, it's, you should always have good neighbors. And I think that's a good, good way to have that together then as well. Then. Um, in terms of plastic, I think we're coming back to that already, uh, later on maybe. Oh yeah, please we go will on. see that, because it's a big thing. Uh, I would say it's in terms of research activities, we are doing a lot uh, related to microparticles right now. Um, there are also a lot of mapping activities going about, just to see the kind of magnitude of the problem. And we've already been discovering it's bigger and larger, and in both in context as well as in, in, in volume, than we were actually aware of just a couple of years ago. So I think there will be lots of things related to what we do in terms of manufacturing, but also consumption that we should look into. Then, and we can do that jointly together then also through various kinds of, of uh, research initiatives that we have together, the Nordic Ministerial Council, for example. So we can address these issues together then. Thank you very Thank much. You. I have to ask you, there was a news item the other day about a newly discovered enzyme. Is that a joke or true? No, it's true. Yes. It's true. And uh, I think uh, that might be one way of uh, having, uh, looking at it, but I th still think we should go to the source of the problem to, to, to mi minimize actually the, the, uh, at the source than looking at technologies to solve the problem. Mm. Because we cannot continue as we're doing then we are likely to, to end up where we're heading. Yeah. <laughs> well, thanks, Mats. Thanks also for another pragmatic and at least your attitude is optimistic <laughs> and, uh, in, in your presentation. Well, I turn to, to you, Johan Schirnschana. Uh, you are known to the Swedish audience, of course, uh, tremendously for your tremendous work at the Stockholm Environment Institute. Now you're heading 
uh, into new territory and you are also, uh, you're now in the vice chair of the Swedish Climate Policy Council, I've learned to say in English, and you are into research and new territory. Well, you can explain that, but uh, I just admire you for wearing what I should have worn today, the, uh, the insignia of commitment to the development goals. Well, what about it? Is SDG 14 any good? Where are we heading? Thanks a lot, and, and Minister, thank you very much for an extremely interesting, nice and positive uh, presentation. I, I do share the optimism, and I think uh, those that know me in Sweden know that I'm, I am actually very optimistic about the transition uh, in the economy that we see right now. I'm more optimistic than ever um, in the 25 years I've been working on sustainability. But we are not here to just give praise and be optimistic and, and agree and, and so on. We are here to also spur discussions. So I hope that I will do that. But being also the fourth uh, commentator, I can actually skip about two-thirds of what I was thinking about saying because that's already been said. And that maybe keeps things a bit shorter. Uh, so I will focus really on, on one aspect. And that is the concept of, of you know the blue economy and, and the SDG uh, to a certain extent. As I said, I've been working on, on sustainability for the past 25 years, actually starting up really being linked to the whole Rio process, working at UNDESA, following up the, uh, the Rio conference, uh, Agenda 21. We have forgotten about it, I think. The Rio principles, actually, you know, extraordinary principles, many of them still shaping a lot of uh, our discussions, polluter paid principles, common but differentiated responsibilities, uh, the fact that we should not cause harm through our consumption in other parts of the world. All, all these are in the Rio principles. But there is one principle also which I think is interesting in this discussion, uh, and that is principle two. And there is a passing there very quickly saying that countries have the sovereign right to exploit their own resources. I think this is an important, it's a typical political thing, of course. But this is at the core of the fundamental problem that we have today. And I, I must say that also in your presentation, I can see that. Uh, an avoidance to talk about certain things. And I think that one you know, key challenge we have that we really avoid talking about today in general terms are natural resources and the exploration of natural resources. And this is what I want to put on the table. And you know, it would be interesting to get your perspective on that. Because I think Norway, to a certain extent, you have you have you know, a leadership opportunity here uh, because of your uh, history and also because of the way your economy is shaped. As I see it, the blue economy risks becoming a buzzword, uh, just like the green economy to certain, or the blue economy risks, just like the green economy. And it's a, it's a nice concept, but there is also a big risk that basically we just continue business as usual, but we do it within the framework of the blue economy and it sounds much better. I think we need to ask, there are three things really to ask, you know, when we when we define a new concept. You know, what is it that we should exploit? Because and we need to exploit national resources, no question about it. I'm not against that at, at all. What is it that we should exploit in the oceans? But we should still ask the question. How? That's also critical. And for what purpose? Because there are competition over the same resources. You can use resources for many purposes. I think there are interesting things then to draw to the SDGs and, and I will give you two examples and, and then after that I will not uh, you know, talk any longer, so I will keep it short. Uh, one is actually one of the indicators, if you're down to that level, <laughs> I don't expect you to know them by heart. We have 17 goals, that's enough, 169 uh, targets, 
But now we also start to develop the indicators. And I think, you know, look at indicator 14.2.1. It's actually quite interesting because it says that countries should report the proportion of national exclusive economic zones managed using ecosystem-based approaches. This is interesting. Ecosystem-based approaches. What does it mean within the context of the blue economy? Ecosystem-based approaches put really the finger on for what, not least. Because we can, you know, take a rainforest, we could exploit that for, for you know, fiber, for wood, but it can also be an ecosystem service for the climate, for water resources, etc. We need to have this serious discussion, I would argue, about resources also in the ocean. We talk about them mostly in the context of, of how we can use them for you know, direct societal purposes and the economy. The second one, uh, then, which is clearly somewhat more controversial and goes back to this sovereign right to exploit resources, although it's more complex in the oceans because most of the ocean floor is, of course, um, beyond uh, national jurisdiction. Uh, at SCI, we have a big project called Mistra Geopolitics looking at the geopolitical changes of the transition to a, a new climate economy, you could say. And there are many geopolitical dimensions there which I think we need to discuss much more. Uh, and we will do so uh, in Mr. Geopolitics, uh, and it's clearly linked to the oceans. The goal, SDG 14, it says conserve and sustainably use the oceans, seas, and marine resources for sustainable development. It's really about in the ocean, and this is what you talk about. You talk about in the ocean, in the water. But as always, we don't talk about on the ocean floors or below the ocean floors. We don't. We have the same problem when we talk about land resources as well. So, take an example: the, the USGS Geological Survey. They they point out that 13% of the conventional oil, 30% of conventional natural gas, is in the Arctic. Mostly in the Arctic Ocean. Um, so you know my point here. You didn't talk about uh, fossil resources, and if we talk about Paris in a serious way if we talk about that we should reach the Paris Agreement, we cannot avoid talk about resources below the ocean floor. We have to talk about oil, gas, and how we get out of the fossil economy. And I think there are certain countries that should take the leadership on this. And it should be countries having experience in how to deal with issues related to fossil fuel. The second part, uh, looking ahead, is also the fact that we have quite extensive mineral resources on the ocean floor. Uh, manganese noodles, uh, cobalt rich, ferromanganese crusts, hydrothermal uh, polymetallic sulfides, you know, all these kind of things. The, the black smokers, a lot of minerals, conventional and also rare earth minerals. Today already countries are submitting lice or, or uh, acquire exploration licenses from the International Seabed Authority for these kind of things. You know, we feel that maybe this is very distant, uh, the rare earth minerals in the oceans, but clearly there are many countries, if you really look into the literature, there are many countries today looking at these resources, strategic resources. And we have to, if we talk about the blue economy in a serious way, also start to talk about other natural resources than those found in the water. And I really would hope that the panel that you are talking about uh, with Norway in the lead and other countries there to also talk about the difficult things. This is a common uh, you know, quest for the Nordic countries, 
because we, we pat ourselves on the back all the time. We are the best in sustainability, but we have a common problem that we also avoid to talk about really the difficult problems. And these are some examples of that I would like to put on the table. Thanks, Yvonne. Uh, well, uh, Minister, I'm sure you are not one to avoid talking about <laughs> any issues. <laughs> Over to you. <laughs> uh, thank you, all of you, and thank you for very good interventions. Um, I will. I, I made a lot of notes, but I will not go through it um, altogether because that would take too much time. But just try to um, to give a couple of comments. Um, when uh, Gunilla asks if the issue of kind of the the blue economy and uh, and the revenues is a primarily a discussion for the developed countries or the developing countries, I think that's a very relevant question. Um, I, I do think that the experiences that that many of the countries in our part of the world really do have uh, with over time. Um, being able to manage more wisely and more sustainable is something that could potentially have an effect also on developing countries. Uh, I do think that when we look at our own economy, just to take what is, of course, closest to, to me and to us, uh, when I say that we have two-thirds of our export revenues stemming from ocean and coastal-based activities, I think that is something that says a lot about how important these issues are also domestically. And if there is anything that we can do to, in a way, export the knowledge and, and the insights that we have jointly acquired over many years, uh, I think that would be a good thing. Uh, when we talk about um, managing the Arctic cod stock as one other example, it would never have been possible for us to have a shared revenue of $2 billion a year with Russia if we didn't manage it sustainably, if we didn't take it, make a choice in 1989 to, to turn the trend. Uh, my point is that what we see globally is that in many countries, I don't think it is necessary, necessarily a lack of will, but maybe a lack of knowledge on how to do it and how to kind of turn the table around and say that we have to start doing this in a different way so we can, can manage this uh, wisely. And that leads me to the second thing that I wanted to, to uh, comment on because I would like to give some time to the people around the table also. It's about illegal fisheries and overfishing. Uh, I have to say I was really disappointed when I participated in the WTO meeting in December in Buenos Aires because we were so close, so close to reaching an agreement on slashing subsidies for overfishing and illegal fisheries. And um, <laughs> I was also disappointed because I, I thought that it was maybe one of the most concrete issues we discussed where we were closest to an agreement. And now it is, in a way, we're, we're back to square one in a way because we're not going to reach an agreement on this, I think, anytime soon, unfortunately, because that could have been such a wonderful stepping stone into into developing blue economies and sustainable fisheries for so many countries. And the fact that we were still left with, of course, a lot of revenues getting lost, but also undermining the fish stocks and, and the, the resources in the ocean in a very, I would say, a very bad way. Um, and it can be dealt with, it's not difficult at all, and it's mainly a question, or not mainly, but it is also a question of something as simple as the policies of subsidies that nations have. So, 
I think we have to join forces also in this um, in this field. Uh, by the way, there were many quite disappointing things at the WTO meeting, but that was one of them. <laughs> one of them. So to um, to Johan's um, uh, question about um, not only what is in the ocean, but also on the ocean floor and also below the ocean floor. Well, um, we could, of course, spark quite a long discussion on oil and, uh, and gas resources. Um, I mean, we, we absolutely do this in a, I would say, sustainable way. But, of course, you have a point when it comes to the green shift, as we call it in Norway. I don't know if it's the same in, in Sweden. The grønne shift and the green shift. Yeah, well, let's just call it the green shift for now. Um, and, and this is about realizing that over time, of course, those resources uh, will be fewer. We have to, both because of our energy needs, but also because of our economy, we have to, to shift the focus at some point. I think, personally, that in, in Norway we started this a bit late. Uh, and I think one of the reasons why we started this a bit late was because we didn't have to. We were not forced to economically, like many other countries were. So uh, even though there is a, I would say, wonderful and extremely talented research being done right now, also on making the fossil resources um, more environmentally sustainable when we produce them, we have to realize that at some point, not exactly now or in five years, but at some point, those resources will not be our main energy source and it will not be uh, our, I would say, an economic source either. Um, even though we provide 25% of the natural gas consumption and need in Europe, uh, and we are a reliable support, um, uh, not supporter, but uh, supplier. We're also a reliable supporter, <laughs> I, would I would add. <laughs> <laughs> of course, depending on what the issue is, but we are a reliable supporter. Um, but I think it is, uh, it is also, in that respect, interesting to see the shift also in a lot of the big industries that deal with oil and gas in Norway now. Uh, one of the things that Statoil, who many of you know, talks mostly about now, and many of the biggest projects they have, is an offshore wind. And I find that very fascinating. Uh, we had a meeting with the governor of California just some months ago. He was invited by uh, the, the then minister of, of the environment. and we have a partnership agreement with California on green and sustainable economies. And, uh, of course, California has really kind of taken a big step forward in, in doing this and is really leading in many, many fronts. And Statoil was also there. And I was a bit, in a way, uh, I thought, okay, <laughs> will we see a showdown here at some point? But no. The point was, rather, that uh, Statel also has a lot of projects related to California where actually making use of all the knowledge that they have uh, acquired over years uh, doing mostly oil and gas projects have now translated into, for instance, offshore wind. Uh, and, and I think that is a very good way of seeing that, that also within that industry the shift is actually happening. Uh, and I think it's beneficial. So I won't say that this is an entirely black and white picture. On the contrary, uh, I think that sustainable production of fossil fuels and also the shift within the industry uh, is still going to be very important and will probably accelerate uh, in the years to come. Also because some of the bigger locomotives are the ones um, kind of paving the way. 
Wonderful. Thank you so much. Uh, I think I turn it uh, a bit to the audience. Um, panel will come back. Can you signal to me when you want to comment? But uh, let's open it up. Uh, we have a mic here, but if you speak up, I think it will work. So please, sir, pr yeah. just you might mention who you are. And Thank yeah. you, Chair. have started on the new agreement uh, for biodiversity beyond national jurisdiction. Um, it's a very important process. And I pick up on perhaps what to do with some of the interventions, through the interventions made. There's a, a golden opportunity now for Norway and Sweden as great ocean leaders to kind of to change the orientation towards a, a bottom-up type agreement, perhaps uh, based on the approach adopted at the Paris Agreement, where there is a role for civil society and there is a, a big role for industry. I think that's uh, something which the IPC uh, could take into consideration over the uh, coming few years. Thank you. Oh, thank you. An encouragement, I look around, but you may pick up on that. Anyone else? Well, do you feel prompted to say something to that? Well, I think, I mean, as I said, that I'm coming from the climate Interesting to hear someone talking more from an ocean perspective. Well, I agree fully with the, the bottom-up approach here could be used, and I think also if we can use that approach together with the Agenda 2030 indicators that will actually be a kind of a game changer and that, that will actually then be a locomotion for changing the entire society. But also how we are looking at how we are actually managing our resources around us then also. So I think it, that's a good case. And I think also the, the, the case of microplastics, to come back to that case, is actually a good thing. Because if, if I don't know how many of you that have been studying natural science and so on and know about the, the thermodynamical principles, <laughs> if you've been doing that, then you're not at all uh, 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 surprised about that we have uh, uh, microparticles all over the place. Because that's how it is, and that's actually what's going happening with all kinds of things that we are utilizing. However, if we, we can still minimize that, but it's also so we can see the kind of, uh, of uh, um, effects of our consumption. I would say that the microparticles can actually show that kind of process from the manufacturing, how are you using it, and how are you dispersing it, or, or, or taking care of the litter and so on, but also how it's actually then spread over the place. And uh, now we have uh, been mapping quite well. I, I assume that has also been taking place in Norway. Of course, I've been emanating a few reports also for Norway, looking at, for example, the, the effects of the roads on the ocean, for example, but also how we are taking care of the sludge from our, our seaweed stations and spreading it back to the agricultural system. There are also ways of spreading the microparticles. So we have to consider that and take care of what we're actually doing. So this is really a good way of actually looking at what kind of footstep we are having in terms of our ways of living. And I think that's an opportunity and, and a chance for us to do something about it then also. Yeah. Thank you, Minister. 
would just like to add one comment because I think you are absolutely right that the, the bottom-up approach is, I would say, mostly preferable. But in some cases, we need a combination of a top-down approach also because we need to show some political <coughs> leadership and to, to point out a direction. Uh, what I find very interesting with the SDGs to a much greater extent than what we saw with the MDGs is that, at least in Norway, and we talked about this among the Nordic ministers earlier on today, that in all countries we experience a completely different interest from the business sector and from civil society on the SDGs. I think it is because, partly because at least, that they find some more concrete things to, to deal with. It's not only a vision, it's something concrete. So they are lining up many of them to, to take part. I think it is a wonderful opportunity. And that is also why we are linking ourselves so closely with the UN Global, Global Compact. And we are, within the, the panel that the Prime Minister will be leading, uh, also taking civil society researchers and others into, into the mix. I think that provides a very good opportunity that we will hopefully not miss out on. I wonder... Well, thank you. Um, are we keeping up? I mean, even those industries who are interested in the SDGs and the logic that you have espoused so well, yet at the same time, technology uh, is expanding rapidly, and there are many more business around the world who want to enter and who might not yet have learned this lesson. You mentioned, you Yuan, uh, the... Um, what's on the seabed and underneath. And well, as an amateur, I read The Economist the other day and saw images of, of um, robots digging out on the seafloor and the references to the legal frameworks that allows the allocation of rights to be at the seabed. Are we keeping up with the rule of law, with governance, with the uh, economics of sustainability that needs to go into this? I wonder if, well, Mats is signaling and then Johan, <laughs> Mike coming. Well, the simple answer is no. Um, I mean, we can look at how the, the, the various resources in the, in the Pacific Ocean, quite far from here, and there are no Nordic countries uh, actually uh, claiming any resources there, but there are lots of other European countries doing that. The claims uh, are actually larger and they were before the areas that were actually then protected also. So in that case, in terms of protecting the, the sea bottom, we're actually lagging behind. And I would say that that race will then spread to other reasons also. Just, just last week there was now a report about how they were uh, 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 looking at the uh, possibilities of exploiting resources outside uh, on the seabed outside Japan. And Japan is really an economy that are looking at natural resources because they are have they are kind limited in terms of what space and 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 uh, land uh, territories they are having. So they are of course looking at the ways of expanding. So I think we are lacking there, and we are also lacking uh, international legal systems taking care of that. You no, I agree, and I I think I mean for instance we we do have other. Uh, examples that we could probably look at more, like Antarctica, for instance, uh, which is being protected, uh, and where Norway also has a strong presence, and and, and it's a driver, uh, of course, also uh, for protection. Um, and I, you know, putting a memorandum, oh, what, what do you call it, moratorium, for instance, on on explorations. Uh, but this is going to be very tough because one one reason the interest is so strong now is not least that you have the rare earth minerals there, and and uh, you know. 
there is a strategic thing here. Rare earth minerals today, the the the, uh, the I mean the market is controlled not exclusively but closely to exclusively by China by one country, and of course this this is an opportunity to you know f use these or find these resources elsewhere. Um, so it's an extremely politically sensitive uh, issue, uh, no doubt, and in a, and in a way I think you know it's. Uh, if you want to be dramatic, I like to be dramatic. You you can you can look at the oceans where you where you really have the fight between the old and the new economy, and both of them having challenged. You have still maybe the biggest uh, fossil uh, resources still uh, under the seabed, and you have all these new minerals that we need for the transformation. So the oceans is really where we have a battle between the the new and the old economy, or the old and new economy, and both of them are really causing challenges to uh, ocean management. Uh, that's the dramatic story. I like dram drama, but <laughs> yeah. That, but the short story, yeah. The short uh, answer is really that we do lack uh, the the you know the appropriate legal frameworks for this, and um, I don't think that the poor countries are those that will be first in exploiting these resources. That's for that's for sure because it's going to be very expensive. But could I just add something to? Um the drama queen's um, <laughs> presentation. <laughs> <laughs> yes, very Nordic. Very unusual for Nordics to be so so dramatic. Uh, but but I I absolutely agree on that. The fact that there are so many areas um, that where, where the legal framework is at best maybe unclear, uh, at worst non-existing. But it is also um, two sides to that story, because remarkably we've seen many countries that do not adhere too much to international law uh, on a daily basis actually make use of what I would call uh, a very good instrument, namely the Continental Shelf Commission, and actually making their claims legally and in accordance with the law uh, to the Continental Shelf Commission and actually taking the potential uh, conflicts there. I think that is good, because uh, that's not a given uh, in today's uh, community. The other thing is that many or most of the unexploited resources um, of, for instance, oil and gas, yes, they are uh, located uh, around the Arctic, um, but as sometimes I get invited to panels where the title is the race to the Arctic or the race for the Arctic. And I hate to disappoint people when I get into a panel, but um, it isn't that much of a race. Uh, and one of the reasons for that is actually that those resources, they are allocated to countries already. There is no disagreement. And I think in this respect, that is also a side of the story that, that is good in, in this sense. Thank you. Question?
Thank you. Well, if you can pick this up. I saw some sign over here. No? Okay. All right, over there. Minister, or yeah, I can just start because I think it is a very good question about how to how to maintain the the interest and not only maintain but also develop and make sure that it is here five years from now or ten years from now. Um, there is always a risk that when the world unites around either new SDGs or or new um, interesting topic like the oceans. Uh, everyone wants to be a hanger-on and, and no one really claims any kind of leadership that is sustainable over time. And we've seen that in many, many instances. Um, I, think it is an I think it is an absolute possibility that this can be different. And again, I'm trying to be optimistic here. And I think there is good cause for optimism. One is that we see that this topic is engaging globally. Uh, one of the uh, interesting things that we uh, we saw when we started looking into the establishment of the panel, the Prime Minister's panel, was that from different angles, this is highly relevant for a lot of countries globally or, or geographically placed in very different places, but also having very different challenges. Some of them are uh, not necessarily... Um, for instance, doing fisheries, but they are recipients of a lot of plastic litter because they are geographically situated where the streams lead the plastic into their shores. Uh, but it's as relevant for them as when we are talking about managing our common fishery stocks with, with the Russians. Uh, and that is why I think that oppo as opposed to some other topics, this has the potential of actually engaging more broadly than just, as you rightly point out, us in the developed countries and we're looking at the developing countries and saying, this is what you should do and this is relevant for you. I mean, if, if we, if you can just easily imagine when two-thirds of our export revenues comes from coastal and ocean-based activities, if we lose that in any way, it could have huge impacts on the Norwegian economy. So we have all the interest in the world in, in taking care of it as, as good as we can together with others. But but I think that that is why, uh, and that is what I think is also quite new with the with the SDGs is that they are globally relevant and and with different points of departure. Uh, so I'm quite hopeful actually. Can I can I add to this while you are preparing uh, to to respond? Is it true that the Gulf Stream might change course faster than we think? <laughs> 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 
Oh, yeah. Oh, well, that, that's a big issue. Um, <coughs> but I would say that, that we have the precautionary principle that should be actually been played at a long time ago uh, in that issue. And it might be too late already if it's turning. And then we are going to have quite of a cold climate here in, in the Nordic countries then also. So maybe then we will have polar bears running around in the streets of Stockholm. Um, because that's the kind of scene that we still try to export once in a while. Maybe they're running on, on Kaljohan in Norway also. Yeah, um, but I would like to address first ocean literacy also because I think that's a very very good topic actually because I I think we are lacking a lot of knowledge about the oceans still. I can just ask a, a control question here: What is the average depth of the oceans in in on on this globe? Anyone? Four thousand meters. Any more bets? Any more bets? Any more bets? Four thousand meters there. Four more thousand meters there. Well, it's around 3,500 meters, so you were pretty close. <laughs> now, the control issue is then, what is the average depth of the Baltic Sea? It might be hard for you guys not coming from the area, but you can have a guess. It's 52 meters. Wow. <laughs> so just uh, as an example of ocean literacy, right? So there are gaps there where we should address, uh, and I think that will also be uh, maybe a topic also for, for uh, your prime minister and, and the, uh, the conference uh, that you're going to have in, in Norway next year then also. And then uh, in terms of research gaps, there was a question about that also. I would say that the research gaps is then also related to source to sea concept also, just to have the relationship of what we're doing in terms of our lifestyles and, and, and activities on land what kind of effects it's having on the ocean. We're still not seeing or having the kind of full picture clear for us in terms of that. And then also, of course, climate change. That's the biggest challenge we have in front of us. And it has already just been starting. And now we can see it in, in rising sea levels, for example. That will be very detrimental for many countries. But also for countries like, like Norway and Sweden and so on, we will also be, be, be hit by, by that. We have to do something about it, and the, the sooner the better. Uh, we also have ocean acidification, which is a big thing also. We don't know how that will actually change the ecosystems. We know it's going to change, but not how. So I, I would say that's, that's also a big research gap. And then also in governance systems, because I like uh, such topics as well, and also because we should be able to identify gaps there as well. Then we lack good global governance systems for the ocean still. Uh, I've been mentioning that several times before, then also. And that's also a research gap. Thank you. Just to mention a few. Briefly, briefly, uh, Johan, and then I will. Very briefly. Yes, you know. Do you know when last time uh, we had a major shift in the Gulf Stream? I can also, you know, science caps. <laughs> Younger Dryas, about 10,000 years ago. Temperature dropped about 6 degrees in 50 years. 6 so degrees in 50 years. We're living precariously. So, uh, anyway, <laughs> just very quickly on the, on the question. I think we should be optimistic about the SDGs actually surviving, and it's a completely different setting today. One thing being that they are much more driven, as many of you stated, through the private sector and so on. They make much more sense in a way than Agenda 21. Agenda 21 was still very fragmented and extremely divided between environment development issues. I think for the first time we really now start to be able to marry em environment development issues. There is no direct threat to the economy if you have a very uh, strong 
environmental sort of policy, there are actually you know good good opportunities for both, and I think that is critical. And on the science, I, I must say also on the science side, I think you know the whole geopolitical changes is clearly a scientific question related to the transition where natural resources will be at the center. But scientists also increasingly being facilitators supporting political processes I think will be key for the future. Thank you. Well, we are going to wrap up in exactly six minutes and I have a few hands and I'd like for you also to have a chance uh, to respond. As we then wrap up and the minister, you get the last word. Every journey, especially if there is a zero um, target at the very end must start with some practical steps and for us who are you are experts but some of us are here to really learn the importance of this issue what should we be watching for watching out for during the next 12 months what would be a sign that the net that the world is actually learning something on this subject that I would like you to perhaps round off the gentleman there please and Thank you. Was there any other hand? Otherwise, I would like to turn to Helen or Gunilla. No? Yes? Um, thank you. Um, well, uh, talking about uh, engagement and keep keeping the momentum and, and moving forward, um, I would just like to mention a parallel um, uh, working with climate issue at national level. So before the Paris Agreement, uh, the Swedish government set a goal to be one of the first fossil-free nations uh, of the world. And then uh, inviting uh, businesses and civil society to meet up to that challenge and, and uh, look at what can we contribute, what can we do. So, um, um, and, and why, uh, at the start I think there was something about 50 companies or something, they are now 350 in a few years and initiatives are are played out by by these stakeholders the retailing sector are uh, have now committed to targets until 2030 to have a fossil free plastics um the transport sector want to make sweden an, a permanent world exhibition for sustainable transport etc so there is a lot of uh, engagement and, and maybe that's what we will also would also like to do uh, in the uh, ocean area. Um, why did these companies commit? Well, some wanted to be on the right team, to be honest. Some really searched for uh, market transformation and development, or many of them actually. And uh, many also see the merits in linking um, the work of the private sector to uh, political processes. Um, and then uh, they all said, it's more fun working together, setting ambitious targets, striving towards something together, uh, and trying constructively to find the solutions. So I think that is uh, what uh, we want to achieve and we hope that the cooperation with Norway with a high level panel and linking to the political process and the Swedish Friends of Ocean Action 
looking at concrete solutions and how can we cooperate there to, to make them mutually supportive uh, would Thank be uh, one key. More fun also from a profoundly human. Gunilla. Thank you. Um, well, I, I'm a researcher and uh, 12 months is a very short perspective. So uh, what I would sort of look out for or watch out for is more related to a series of uh, critical questions. And uh, I think the science political uh, divide that we see in many of these processes when we're talking about in particular the bottom-up approach, there's a sort of a lack of uh, scientific knowledge, I would say, because it's more based on what governments say that they could provide or what they could do. And before it was more based on, on what the, the science pr said that they we need to do. So I think that's one critical question for governance in general, uh, climate in particular, and probably oceans as well. Um, another question that you mentioned uh, was fragmentation and uh, how we are breaking silos. I think that is something that is, uh, of course, very important. Uh, it relates to knowledge and knowledge communities. And uh, I think that is something that we have come back to over the years and uh, we do not have the answer to that. And I think uh, politics and, and researchers need to think about that and how to find processes, not just talking about it, but how we find processes of actually achieving this break of policy silos. Uh, these are just two critical questions that I could sort of wrap up thank from my perspective. Much. Well, thank you. Gentlemen, I think I'll pass you over and uh, give it to the minister. Thank you. <laughs> thank you. Uh, I wanted to, to answer um, the question that came from, from the journalists. Well, uh, the increasing tensions between Russia and the West has had no impact on our ability to cooperate on the various joint commissions that we have, be it nuclear safety, fisheries, econo economic commission, and so forth. And, uh, of course, uh, you can say that there are many reasons for that, but we, we have a mutual interest in making this work because we share exactly the same interest in everything from the revenues uh, to making sure that this is a long-term thing that we can, we can continue to do. And I think that the lessons we learned at the end of the 80s, not only with fisheries, but also uh, in other areas, have shown that uh, only through cooperation uh, we can make this work in the future as well. So it's, it's working fine. And I, uh, in this regard, also can mention just one small project that Norwegian and Russian researchers at the University of St. Petersburg found together was that the king crab is actually now a source of a lot of income. And it is moving, uh, moving a lot actually. Um, not, <laughs> not only <laughs> around itself, but <laughs> it's moving in the waters. And one of the things that was very critical was to have a healthy a crab as possible. So the researchers found a way to measure the heartbeat uh, of the crab. Uh, and to see that it, when it was very stressed and had a very high heartbeat and rhythm, uh, you would have worse results when it came to the quality of the crab uh, in the end. It's very much like us with fewer arms, I would say, uh, that if you have a kind of a high pulse and a, and a high heartbeat, there is some usually something wrong. But that is quite a new project, and it's a very good example on, again, how a joint management, joint research is actually working, even though 
there are more difficult times between Russia and the West. Uh, so I just wanted to, again, try to end on a positive note, uh, that this is actually possible to make happen through many of the concrete projects that we already have. Thank you. Thank you. In Eriksson Sarede, thank you for visiting us at the Institute. Thanks to the excellent panel, and thank you all for having spent the afternoon with us. Thank you. Find us on www.ui.sc. We are also on Facebook and on Twitter with UI Sweden. And we're also on YouTube, where you can watch our seminars and interviews. <laughs>